0: Perhaps because of some particular challenge they're facing, or maybe because of a special joy. We can introduce them to the group by speaking their name and a sentence or so about their situation. And then, when we're all present, we'll end our sitting. We have a 10 minute or a little bit more break. I'll hit the bell and we'll start again at 11 o'clock. work oh God. Let me just check and see how the sound is working. Is this okay? Okay? We're doing good? Okay. So some of you may have been expecting to see Sylvia, but she is snowed in in New York. She called me Sunday night and said, oh my gosh, my my flights have been canceled. So um, she's still there. (laughs) She was hoping to come back today, maybe tomorrow, because there were... Thousands of flights canceled, just messed everything up. So you get me, my name is Tony Bernhardt and I'm a friend of Sylvia's and a student. And um, I show up here three or four times a year. Um, and I thought what I would talk about today was the refuges. They're, they're a really central part of the Buddhist tradition and really, um, they are what reflect our our uh, commitment to the path. I mean, if you are if you are finding refuge in a if you're a Catholic and finding refuge in a confessional, you're not following the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Those of us who are following the Buddha's teaching turn to refuge for the uh, turn to refuge for the um, in, in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, and the community of practitioners. But usually, this is something that's that's uh, done ritually. You know, we say often at the beginning of retreats, sometimes at the beginning of day longs, and sometimes just randomly. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Um, Sometimes we say it in Pali, so we really mean it. We say it three times, we really, really mean it. But uh, we often do it just as a matter of reflection. Uh, for years, when I would say, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, I would be saying, really, I like the Buddha, I like the Dharma, I like the Sangha. And uh, hadn't thought much past that. <clears throat> But I'd like to talk about the refuges as a, as a vehicle for reflection on the path and what we're doing and how we're going about it. Taking refuge. I guess the idea, refuge from what, is the first thing. Let's take, consider a little bit... Um, take refuge refuge is a, a place of safety you know have, some of you may have been to the city of refuge in Hawaii you know it's a it's sort of on a beach and I guess it's it's from the time when uh, the the I'm not sure whether they were native there they I think they floated there from Tahiti or something I'm not quite sure what the story is but if you had committed some kind of Capital offense, like letting your shadow fall on the person of the king um, then the the way to safety would be to find your way to the um, to the refuge on on a beach <laughs> um, before they got you, and then you would be safe if, if you're there it's not a great place i mean it's a beach you know it's maybe five or six acres with a little wall around it. It's not paradise, although Hawaii isn't so bad. But it was a place of safety, so refuge, safety from what? Oh. The Buddha the Buddha was actually fairly explicit about it. it. He listed elements in the first the first noble truth. First noble truth, the truth of the unsatisfactoriness of life. And he listed the elements. Birth doesn't sound so like I said, but have you ever noticed that the people who haven't been born don't have our problems, no. aging, sickness, and death, pain—not just physical pain, although if you've got a body, there's going to be pain—but the pain of our uh, thoughts often. The idea of our immortality can be painful. all kinds of disappointments painful, sorrow, sadness, sadness over loss, sadness over um, not having things the way we think they should be Sorrows, despair. Lamentation, distress, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. These are all elements that are on everybody's dance card, I think. Has anybody missed any of them yet? (laughs) Still waiting for one of them? (laughs) You check the boxes. Refuge, you know, it's not like the Buddha... Um, didn't experience these things. He got old. He was sick. Experienced pain. He died. What could refuge in the Buddha mean? What kind of safety? The Buddha is, for us, an idea for each of us. Each of us has our idea of who we think he is and what we think he accomplished. And it's kind of, you know, in a way it's pretty important because our practice, what we're doing, is guided by our understanding, whatever that is, of what might be possible. If the Buddha attained some kind of freedom or liberation, how do we understand that? If we if we don't have that image, if it's not really clear, well, it reminds me of Yogi Berra, who said, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you're liable to wind up somewhere else. I want to think a little bit about how we understand who the Buddha was. And because there are many, many ways of thinking about the Buddha, and there probably isn't you know, we probably each have our own unique understanding. But some of the broad outlines, if you think the Buddha was someone who migrated through multiple lifetimes, found, you know, was in the presence of Dipankara Buddha, and then spent a Kalpa reincarnating and perfecting uh, the paramis until he became the Buddha, that's a different understanding than if you think he was a person just like us. Just like us. Thich Nhat Hanh says, Vietnamese Zen master says that just because the Buddha was a person like us means that countless Buddhas are possible. We should have some kind of an idea of what we think. Just think about what we think, who, who he was, and what he accomplished. Did he get enlightened? Was he fully awakened? Did he attain nibbana? Was he free from greed, hatred, and delusion? How do we understand what what he did? Enlightened? What does that word mean? How do we? You know, when I was when I was younger, I thought I wanted to get enlightened. Sounded good. I had no idea. Well, it just sort of sounded like, well, you know, then everything is fine. No unpleasantness, because oh, fully awake. To what? What is? What do those words mean? We just sort of recite them and don't don't think so much. He attained nibbana. How do we understand that? There isn't just one way of understanding it. In the early texts, the Buddha talks about when the Buddha is asked. When Saraputta, his senior disciple, is asked about nibbana, they say, um, Nibbana is the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the experience that's present when we are no longer deluding ourselves and craving. But that's not you know, that's not the universal idea. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the You know, the scholar, the monk who translates, who's translated all of the suttas, um, says that nibbana is not just the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, but a transcendent reality that we access through meditation somehow. Um, There are many ideas. If you think that's what the Buddha did, then your practice is liable to be different. Then, if you think what he did was to find his way to equanimity in the face of those that list of you know unsatisfactory elements in our life, was he? Did he attain freedom? You know, freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion doesn't mean that he didn't experience them. He certainly experienced aging. He had a bad back. Sometimes he couldn't give his toxin and Ananda had to do it for him. He died in, in, uh, in some pain. So it's not like he didn't uh, experience that stuff, but he wasn't, he was, he was free of it in a way. Uh, Sharon Salzberg tells a story about one of her teachers, Manindra. They were traveling, he was older, and he, they were traveling through India, and they were stuck in, I think it was a train station in Delhi, and it was hot, and the trains were late, and they kept changing the platforms, and she started to worry about him because it was so so hot, and she asked him if he was okay, it was how hot it was, and he said, well, um, there is heat here, but I am, I'm not hot. Did the Buddha attain freedom? What would it mean to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion? Greed, wanting? I think, for me, my understanding is the Buddha found freedom from himself. His self is the origin of our craving. Self can never be complete. It's always partial. It's always in distinction to something that else that's not me. And it's not that he didn't know about himself, he just was free from that selfing. Understanding how the the Buddha, what the Buddha attained is, um, seems to me, it's the navigational idea for us in our practice. And refuge in the Buddha would be refuge in the idea that liberation is possible. Freedom as possible. One of the things that, that uh, I've been working with for some time is the, is the teaching that the Buddha had. He said, I've, I teach a Dharma that doesn't contend with anyone, that doesn't argue or quarrel with anyone. No gods and maras, no people, no kings. He attained something like that. And understanding that has been a uh, you know, a task for me. How what is it how how can you what does it mean to live and not contend? But he didn't contend with anyone or with with life. Our contends our contentions with life come to an end. So Refuge in the Buddha is refuge in the idea that however you understand what he attained, that's, that's possible in the face of life's unpleasantness and pain. Refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma would be a refuge if it, and these, the Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. It's the map or the recipe for how to get to be the way you understand the Buddha to be and to what he attained so it's so it's it's refuge it's safety in the idea that there's a way it's not just something magical it's not some it's not something that you know like the fairy godmother taps you on the head and you are awake it's not some it's not grace or anything it's there's, there's something that can be done. But then there's the question of how do we know what the Buddha was, was really talking about. You know, he taught 2,500 years ago, and we have a whole tradition, a whole set of teachings and, and, and um, traditions that are built up around him and I think of it often as like the end of a 2,500-year game of telephone. I mean, really, I mean, for the first 500 years, the teachings were passed down verbally. Well, you know, it's hard enough to get the same message around a table full of, full of people. But luckily, there's a huge amount of stuff. I mean, he, there's a bookshelf full. He taught for 45 years. People tried to remember, and... But in the course of the time, there's a lot of noise in there with the signal. So how do we tell? How do we tell what the Buddha really was getting at? There's some ideas that are that are that f- float around. Before there was fake news, there's fake Buddha quotes. <laughs> really, take a look. There's a website. It's called Fake Buddha Quotes. One word. I think it's dot com. But it could be .org, but I think it's .com. Check it out; it's really kind of fun, you know. Um, there's a the, what's currently on the uh, on the, the front page is a story about how the Buddha invited Mara in for tea. Maybe you've heard this. You know, Mara shows up. Mara is the personification of um, ignorance and temptation, I guess. And the Buddha says, "Welcome, Mara." And they sit down and have tea. There are many teachers that teach us. None of that is even in the early texts. But there it is. There are ideas that float around in Dharma circles that are not in the early texts anywhere. The oneness of all things. We are just. We're all the same. We're all part of the same unity. Buddha never taught that. Some things like the paramis, the perfections, the 10 perfections, the Theravadans, we have 10 of them, um, but they didn't exist at the Buddhist time. They were added in later. I've no complaint about them. It's just they weren't part of the early teachings. They, arrived, they showed up after the Mahayana, uh, Mahayanas got six I think they got six paramis so we've got 10. Yeah, you know, there, there are. Uh, today, we can, we can recognize things that are happening. Gratitude practice, not something the Buddha ever taught. As wonderful as it can be, as healing as it can be, as supportive as it can be, forgiveness practice. These are practices we're all adding in to help us along, but they aren't. They aren't particularly what the Buddha was was teaching how do we find out what the Buddha actually was talking about? There's some different strategies. Annalya Bhikkhu, who's a, a translator, a scholar, a monk, who, um, you know, his work, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's, who's the translator and monk that we, that we know most uh, most, Says that Analio makes him feel like a piker, like a dilettante. Analio spends half his life on retreat, two weeks each month on retreat, and then two, two weeks he will spend writing a, an academic article that gets published in a peer reviewed journal. He does a dozen of those a year. Pretty incredible. He translates in a dozen languages and uh, is, is doing scholarship. What he does is he doesn't pay any attention to anything after Ashoka. Ashoka was the king of India, or a large part of India, um, a couple hundred years after the Buddha. He just doesn't look at texts after that. And That's how he, how he does it. Stephen Batchelor does it a little bit differently. What he, what he does is he, he's looked at the ideas that were present, that were ambient in the culture at the time, and then he looks what's at what's in, in the, uh, the Pali texts. Pali is the language in which the Buddha's teachings have been preserved. And, he, and the stuff that's different says, well, that, you know, so for example the idea of rebirth, reincarnation was ambient in the culture. So he says, well, okay, that's not something that the Buddha brought to the table. The idea of karma, for example, present in the culture. Although the Buddha flipped the idea a little bit. But um, jhana practice, concentration... Intense mental absorption practice this was present in the culture at the time. When the Buddha left home, he spent some time working with a couple of uh, teachers who were who were jhana masters and within a few months he had attained he was pretty good at it apparently, and he had attained such accomplishment that these Teachers invited him to share their leadership of their sanghas with with them. The Buddha said, not nah, quite. It's pretty nice, but when you open your eyes, it's same old, same old. Mindfulness practice, not anywhere else. It's the Buddha's the Buddha's contribution to the meditation was the particular kind of attention, a caring attention. <laughs> To our to our present experience, and, and our present experience includes the turkey. So, it's, so caring attention to our present experience, to just what's happening, that was something that the Buddha the Buddha added, and it's it's the the technique that we're taught. And it's the practice that that generates the insight that helps us grow in our practice. He ethicized behavior, so the precepts were ambient at the time. In fact, you know, if you look at the first four precepts, that you know they're they're not so far off from the commandments: don't kill, don't steal, don't the commandments don't commit adultery. We we don't engage in harmful sexuality, don't lie. But the Buddha was not, you know, those, and and it's the giants at the time, they took the same four vows, don't kill, don't don't steal, etc., don't take what's not freely given. And there are accounts in, in the early texts of Brahmins who come to the Buddha and say, I think that the highest moral attainment is to refrain from, from, uh, killing, from, har- from harming, from taking what's not freely given, etc. And the Buddha said, ah, "A stupid baby boy lying on his back doesn't do those things." So you're telling me that the highest moral attainment is something that's you know, a stupid baby boy can. What he did was to say every action. He emphasized all our behavior. If you set a rule, don't, don't lie. You're not taking into account the environment. Don't steal. Don't, don't take what's not freely given. I mean, there are times when speaking truthfully would not be the ethical thing to do. Nazis knock on the door and say, Is Anne Frank here? You know? Don't take what's freely given. What about a child with a gun? Or someone who's drunk, the car keys? You know, sometimes taking what's not freely given, sometimes. So the Buddha was awake to the interaction between us and our environment. And every action, he said, should be focused on not making things worse, not adding more dukkha, more unsatisfactoriness into the mix. And sometimes, of course, we can't No, We do our best and things go south, you know? So really, he was, it was about our intention to do that. And so ethical behavior for him had to do with our intention. he added um, the notions of dependent origination and emptiness. They're sort of flip sides of seeing the same thing. Dependent origination is the idea that all things that we experience are embedded in everything else. They're all dependently arisen. Nothing exists independent from all things. Really, from all things. One of my fa- I, I I tend to hang out on the NASA website, and there's a there's a little clip there that I found. These two astrophysicists are talking about nuclear f- fusion and the life of stars. They said, you know, every drop of every red blood cell in your body has at its heart an atom of iron. Everyone in us right now. And the only place in the universe where an atom of iron is made is in the heart of an exploding star. I mean, at the Big Bang, no iron. Now, iron. We are, you know, our, our bodies are built from, well, Carl Sagan said, stardust. But this is, these are elements that we are embedded in everything. Dependent it means that, that really at the depth there are no things. Everything is in process, everything has changed. That star, which looked like a thing, now it's uh, us. And us soon something else. Even things that are changing so slowly that we don't see them. There's plenty of things changing fast enough that we see them. But things that are changing so slowly that we don't notice. We think, well, for practical purposes, it's stable, permanent. But all things are... So there are no things, really. There's just flux. And the idea of thing is a a linguistic... uh, feature. Nouns. Nouns occur in language, and they, they help us represent our experience to ourselves so that we can be better at surviving. We can remember where we've been, what we're going to do. We can plot and scheme. We can hold all these ideas in our head. It makes us pretty skilled survivors. But nouns are empty of Whatever it is, they're about essence is the way it's usually described. Empty of essence. There's there's a Zen koan which goes, "Unthing." And we, we, our brain creates things, but then we believe our brain, and then of course we suffer. We expect things to be the way we think they are. And when they're not, we complain. Oh, that's another place people go for refuge. Complaint. Anger sometimes, too. And then, you know, the the Buddha, um, it's not like he taught a little bit of you know, rebirth over here and a little bit of precepts over there. and He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. I teach about our dissatisfaction with life and the end of our dissatisfaction with life. He had an insight into the way in which we make things worse for ourselves and others. And he articulated that insight in terms of the four noble truths. So the Four Noble Truths, one of my early teachers, Ayakama, used to say everything besides the Four Noble Truths is excess dharma. Four truths are generally, you know, this is the origin of this is suffering. This is dukkha. Hmm, that first truth. You know, in the in the first sermon he says this is. This is suffering, the truth of suffering. And he just includes that list. Birth, aging, sickness, death. It's not some Oxford Dictionary definition. These are the unsatisfactories of life. The second truth is the origin. What makes those things unsatisfactory? Because really, by themselves, pain is just pain. But what makes pain unsatisfactory? It doesn't help us. We're not built to want pain. Pain is a signal that we've got to address something, it's a survival thing. So, we usually, in the effort not to have unpleasantness around, we often make things worse. The third truth is that the cessation of suffering is possible. And by dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, he says this, it's the cessation of that wanting. It's the cessation of the ways in which we make things worse that gives us freedom. Not that those impulses won't arise. We don't take the bait. And the fourth, the fourth of the truths is the eightfold path, which when I first heard it, I thought was way too many folds. I said, let's just let's just get right to the heart of the matter. You know, what is he talking about? Um, interestingly, the word in the third truth is the word that's used to just, is neroda. and it's usually translated as cessation. But in in the Pali language, it's a word that was used to describe the process of shoring up a rice paddy to keep it from leaking. And the metaphor was that we are leaking greed, hatred, and delusion out into the world and that we can stop. And here's how. The Eightfold Path. The Eightfold... I I teach... um, I teach... uh, At Folsom Prison, I teach... um, mindfulness practices in a mental health context where I'm not allowed to talk to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So over the years, I have I can talk about these truths now in language that's, that's not Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So the first truth, usually when I talk with the guys, shit happens. I mean, look at that list. And it happens. I mean, we just happened, right? Anybody here sign up for... This, I mean, here we are. Second truth, we usually make things worse. And that seems to resonate pretty well. We usually make things worse for reasons that have to do with our evolution. We evolved with strong dispositions towards survival and reproduction. Survive and reproduce. Anything, any stronger compulsions advance our agenda into the future. Buddha said, bhavatana, becoming. And we navigate in terms of what's pleasant and unpleasant. I mean, there isn't a manual. I didn't get a manual. I got parents. Um, How do we navigate? What's painful is often something that is a threat to the Organism, so we we try to make the painful go away. Vibhava tanha is the the kind of of craving that Buddha and kama the desire to have our experience pleasant, not just a particular pleasant or pleasurable experience, but we want our experiences pleasant. That's and we move into the future more. That's and in the, in effort to make that happen, we often struggle against the unpleasantness, and we can make things worse. The reactivity to what shows up. And the cessation, of course, the cessation of the leaking. And here's how, the Eightfold Path. There are eight elements. Right view, which... I say to the guys, I say, let's be realistic. Things don't last. And all that unpleasantness, it's just going to happen. There's nothing to do about it. Don't be stupid, right intention. Don't be stupid, be smart. And for me, the fruit of all the practice, right speech, right action, right livelihood, what could be better than living without suffering? speaking acting building a life for me the goal of the practice is right speech right action right livelihood and of course that takes practice right effort and it takes this meditation practice samasati right mindfulness and right concentration stable achancha used to hold up a pen and say meditation is like this this end Mindfulness, this end, concentration. You don't really get mindfulness without some stability, and you don't get any stability without noticing, without mindfulness. So refuge in the, Buddha, in the Dharma is refuge in the notion that there is a map that the Buddha laid out, that the Buddha offered for becoming like him. And that is the Eightfold Path. Refuge in the Dharma. A refuge in the Sangha is pretty interesting because, you know, there's in, in our tradition, we like to recall the story of the Buddha and Ananda. Ananda was his cousin and his also, also his personal attendant for years. And they're standing overlooking the throngs of monks and nuns. And Ananda says to the Buddha, "Boy, this sangha business is pretty is pretty important. Must be half the holy life." And the Buddha says, "Don't say that, Ananda. It's all of the holy life. This is where people would come to find the teachings. You think of and 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 there, this is a you know we like to celebrate our sangha by saying it's all of the holy life." I have, I have friends who put that quote at the bottom of their email as part of a signature. You know, sangha is all of the holy life, but think at the time. I mean, they, you know, it's hard to remember back when there wasn't an internet. You know, but where are you going to go to get the Buddha's teachings? You know, if you're hanging out, you know, 2,500 years ago, they're going to be in this group of people. That's you go and you hang out with uh, with the sangha. And the, the word itself, you know, to assume, to assume there is such a thing, you know, really independent of our ideas of it, mm. the idea of Sangha has evolved some. At the time of the Buddha, it was considered to be the uh, collection of fully awakened beings, the Arhats, however we understand them to be, however we understand their attainments They were, that was sangha. There were four hundred and ninety-nine of them, I think. The story goes, you know, before the first council, and then Ananda, as he was going to bed, he woke up, and then so there was five hundred. But then, after the Buddha was gone, and there wasn't any authority that you couldn't dispute with, when they said, "You are one," "You are one," "No, not so much," "You," are, yeah, "No, no," you know, what, so it became the community of monastics in robes. That's still present today. Some, many people think of Sangha as the monastic community. There's a um, uh, Tibetan monastery in the Santa Cruz Mountains, Vajrapani, and the retreats are held there. And next to the food line there's a sign on the wall that says, out of courtesy we serve Sangha first. And we serve the monastics first. But now we like to think of what we're doing as sangha. We have sanghas here and sanghas there, and we like to think of ourselves as the community of practitioners, so the idea has expanded a little bit. I suppose, I'm, I'm sure there is, I haven't actually... I'm sure there's online sanghas... Right? Yeah. Somebody's there's gotta be. So is that a real Sangha? The people who think that it's so there's gonna be disputes about what is a Sangha. But it taught a dharma that didn't dispute with anyone. So we're just sort of noticing the different understandings of what Sangha is. I think of it as the culture of awakening. It's the culture that supports our practice, and I think of the word culture in an anthropological sense. It includes the artifacts, like books, kinds of communications. It, it includes, you know, my wife has friends in the Australian outback who listen to Sylvia and Gill. Can't believe Tony knows them, <laughs> you know, um, and that's supporting practice. So it's the culture of awakening. It's the culture that supports, supports our practice. But it's not all just hunky-dory. I mean, the Buddha said, yeah, it may be all of the holy life, but there are plenty of places. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, if you can't find a worthy companion in the holy life, walk alone. Like a tusker elephant, I guess that's, is that. I'm not quite sure. I, I don't know my elephants. So he's not saying just, you know, be with a group just because you're going to get together and watch Groundhog Day yet again. He said the purpose of spiritual friendship, or the value of spiritual friendship, is that it supports the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. That, that when you hang out with people who are uh, helping you along the path those are that 's the value in spiritual community spiritual friendship it 's not just not just hanging out and it 's not you know we have we have so it 's not just Whatever the sangha is, or all by yourself, Like you know? If it's the culture of awakening, it can be any any group that where people are where someone is pointing. Ourself, but sanghas, you know, can be problematic. We've all heard of situations where teachers have been. Uh, inappropriate or wrong, or I don't know, cranky. <laughs> um, you know, the notion of an ideal teaching or a perfect teaching and the imperfect teacher floats around. The Dharma is perfect. Well, somehow we, but the but the teachings. That's just an idea. The perfect t- teaching. The Buddha says the Tathagata, that's the word he used to refer to himself, and it's, it sort of translates roughly as thus gone. So the Tathagata, can, Tathagatas can only point the way. And we have to make the effort ourselves. And there's a tendency in our, in our lives to look for authorities to help help us navigate, and Buddha is saying you have to be your own authority. Listen to the to the teachers and find the direction that they're pointing, and then pursue pursue that yourself. Because in the end, we have we we can only free ourselves. So the refuge in the sangha. Sangha is a refuge in the sense that it provides a place to go to find direction. Finding direction is not easy. I, that's been something that I've been mulling for, for quite some time, for some years. How do you know before you know which of, the, which of the paths, what teaching is not a dead end and what is going to be productive for you? And that's kind of a koan that we each have to answer ourselves. If the teachings are are leading us towards freedom, uh, freedom from the suffering that we bring to the unpleasantness of our life. So the refuge is, as a whole, refuge in the Buddha, in the idea of what liberation might be. How do we understand that in the Dharma, in the teachings, which are teachings that are very, you know, they're they're fingers pointing at the moon. We have to find them. We have to find uh, the moon ourselves. And in the Sangha, the culture that supports our efforts and our practice what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we build our lives. It's all referenced in the refuges. And so when we take the refuges, rather than just liking the Buddha, liking the Dharma, liking, which is which, nothing wrong with that. I like the Buddha, <laughs> but it's the idea of the Buddha. Our understanding of the teachings and the community that supports our practice. We take refuge in, in, uh, in the Buddha and his teachings. So we have some time, and I thought that after reviewing pretty much everything about the practice from about 20,000 feet that uh, there might be some questions or, or comments or even disagreements.
1: So if anyone has a
0: comment even, or thought, The idea is to speak into the mic so that the uh, recording can go to Dharma Seed. Is there anyone who would like to uh, comment or question? Okay. Well, thank you guys for your attention. Uh-oh, you're looking at me expectantly. Ring
2: a bell or something? Oh, ring a bell?
0: Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Was this here all the time for you? This was When you this got here, here this night,
2: yeah, this?
0: it was microphone. but it wasn't working at first it wasn't it wasn't and then there was some woman in a uh-huh, gray shirt yeah. who opened it up and pushed some things
2: uh-huh.
0: and then it worked
2: i see so and you knew to put it on yeah
0: okay it great works. thank you thank you very much for your oh my pleasure wow. i think
2: for me first I'm he put the title. I think that's probably, let's see if he wants so to do it
0: anymore. Can make an announcement there. to leave the chairs in place?
2: Um, oh, please leave the chairs in place today. Thank you. Thanks for your effort.
0: <laughs> Thanks. That's you go start, put say something.
2: Did you want to add anything on here? Or?
0: No, I just, just Okay. I just revisited. Notes. Thank Everybody you. the reference is.
2: Okay, and this isn't—is this not? No, that was this
0: the was, clock here. was here. Okay, the very pocket, good. I looked in the clock at the clock were a white face with big—it would be easy for yeah, the to, to see. see. Yeah, it's hard to see.
2: Yeah. I'll mention that. Thanks so much for being here. Oh,
0: my pleasure. Please
2: give our love to Tony. I
0: will. She'll be uh, happy to hear about it.
2: How is, is she? She's
0: pretty much the same. She's doing a lot of painting now, which oh, is really, really nice.
2: You know, oh, that's wonderful! And
0: watercolors and just—it's just she used to, and then she went to law school. and didn't, and uh-huh. now that she's sick and stuck at uh-huh. home, so that's what she's doing. Oh, that's, that's beautiful! Yeah, I'm glad for her.
2: Nights, yeah. <laughs>
1: Great.
2: Well, thank you. Oh my! I Oh, thank you, Kathy. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So I, I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. I guess okay. it wasn't working, yeah. and then you fixed it. Yeah. And he knew to put this on. He just hadn't done it. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's perfectly all right.
1: That's what I'm here for.